0: Follow the Letter Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetterRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co host, and mini series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Steph and Nate close out our Brian Jones miniseries with a Q&A covering the drug busts and trials, his appearance at Monterey Pop, his death, his children, and his legacy. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and this week, Steph and I are continuing our series of Q&As about Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones.
0: All right. So let's go ahead and start with Monterey and why it was so very important to Brian Jones's story.
1: Monterey is important in the, in the Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones story for two reasons. One of which is that Brian Brian's official role at the, at the Monterey Pop Festival was to get on stage and introduce Jimi Hendrix. And Brian's informal role was kind of the Prince of Monterey. He was there at the height of his glamour and fame. He was dressed up. An unbelievable hippie finery. I mean, silk, robes, fur, collars, jeweled necklaces, just unbelievable stuff. This is a period of time when Brian is routinely uh, dressing up as the Archbishop of Canterbury and going out to (laughs) dinners and lunches at fancy London restaurants. I mean, completely out of his mind. But his fashion was kind of at its peak. And he had always driven his own look, but anita and he had collaborated on on it and she had left him but but he he had taken the lessons he had learned from her and also his travel in morocco had really impacted his fashion and also his his companion for the monterey weekend was nico of the velvet underground who was enjoying probably the peak of her fame with andy warhol and the velvet underground their album had just come out, I want to say, or either had just come out or hadn't come out yet. And they were still seen as the hip new thing from New York because of the Andy Warhol connection and because they were clearly years ahead of their time and they had a massive musical influence on the Stones. Brian and Keith saw them um, at Warhol's factory in '66. And Nico met him, and I want to kind of go on a sideline because I'm reading a new biography of Nico, Can and it I talks ask about
0: one question. Sure. Here. Um, with that music, did it chart? How did it perform on the charts? I know that the Velvet was... Underground yeah.
1: flopped completely. Okay. They were signed to MGM by Tom Wilson, who was the genius uh, producer who did all of uh, most of Dylan's early albums all the way up to um, like a Rolling Stone. He is also the guy who put rock music backing on the acoustic track, Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel and made their career. And so he was a big deal at Columbia because of those two artists and several others. But then he went to MGM Verve where he signed Frank Zappa and the Velvet Underground and was involved in uh, the first albums by both of those outfits. And mgm was not a rock and roll label and really had no idea what they were doing and uh the velvet underground um album was delayed for almost a year i'm not sure why i don't know if that was mgm's decision it was recorded in 66 and not released until 67 but i i think that Might have improved their commercial chances, but because there was a song on the album called Heroin and another song on the album called I'm Waiting for My Man, which was openly about waiting for your drug dealer in Harlem um, or Lou Reed's drug dealer, it it was obviously non-commercial and triggered a big backlash. And plus, the record label figured, well, you've got Andy Warhol. You don't need any promotional help from us. Whereas Frank Zappa had an album called Freak Out with a really brilliant for its time cover design that looked like the ultimate hippie album. And and that thing got wide distribution and, and sold really well, whereas the Velvets flopped. And also when they went out to California... It's very reminiscent of when the Beboppers, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, first went out to L.A. And there was a lot of buzz because they were the hot new thing from New York. They sold out the clubs the first few nights. And by the end of their two-week stand, they were playing to empty rooms. The Velvets did a tour of California uh, with – or just a couple gigs in California with Zappa opening for them. And there was a violent negative reaction both from the L.A hippie rock community led by zappa and then the san francisco community led by the grateful dead and the the velvets and the warhol people hated the hippies and the dead as much as the dead and the hippies hated them so yeah no the velvet underground totally flopped as a commercial proposition i mean sold in the dozens or hundreds on some of their releases um and and the low thousands for others and and Anyway, but back to Monterey, the second thing about Monterey that's important is is that's where Andrew Lou Goldham ran to after Keith and Mick were busted at Redlands, and then Brian was busted the day their trial started. Andrew was very afraid of getting busted himself, and was at a low ebb because of the amount of electroshock therapy and strong psychotropic drugs he'd been on in his various trips uh, to clinics to deal with his manic depression. And so anyway, he kind of he kind of ran away and and hid in America and worked on the Monterey Pop Festival with John Phillips and Lou Adler. And he's Commonly credited with being the reason that Jimi Hendrix and the Who were on the bill, and and made those connections. But Andrew LeGuldem and Brian ended up going out to Monterey together and staying in the same house. And there's uh, with Brian and Nico. And there's a great story about how uh, the Mexican cleaning lady at the house they were staying at had thrown their marijuana out with the scrambled eggs in the morning, and and so they. There was a scene where Nico and Brian took the garbage out of the house and dumped it on the lawn and were going through the scrambled eggs and other refuse in the trash Mm -hmm. picking little buds um, of marijuana out of, of the trash.
0: How did Brian Jones end up with Nico? Was there some special uh, – were they introduced? Did they bump into each other at a show? How did that come to be?
1: So Nico is a little older than The Stone. She's probably five years older than Brian. I think he was 22 and she was 27 when they met. And she had been a very successful model from the mid-50s on. She was in Fellini's um, La Dolce Vita and a very important scene. So she was a a celebrity fashion model. But by the mid-60s, she's pretty old to be a model, and also she was very out of step with the times. Her look was perfect for the late 50s, early 60s. But in the mid-60s, the fashion was for English models like Twiggy and um, Jean Shrimpton, the sister of Mick's first major girlfriend, Chrissy Shrimpton, who were shorter and had the – Asymmetric short hair Vidal Sassoon cuts that were popular in the 60s, those little weird bobs. And Nico had long hair and was really tall and just didn't fit in with that. So she's looking for a new thing. And she's um done a couple of stage outings trying to do kind of a Marlena Dietrich routine of singing torch songs, uh you know, uh, like kind of a la Edith Piaf or something, but in, in, in German or in, in German accented English. And then She uh, had met Bob Dylan and um, realized that she could do different kinds of music. I think Marianne Faithful was a big inspiration to her as well. And so she wanted to meet the Stones. And so she um, went to a party, uh, a record release party for their second album in England. And that's where she met Andrew the Goldham and the Stones. And immediately... You know, the, the quote in her biography says guitarist and well known ladies' man Brian Jones was also reportedly giving Nico the eye throughout the evening. And then in April she goes to Paris on a modeling assignment and her friend Zuzu is dating Brian Jones. And so she goes ends up um backstage with Zuzu and Brian Jones and that and that's thought to be when she and Brian first connected romantically. Um, And there's a great quote from the book. It says, at the tender age of just 22, Jones was already notorious for his sexual sexual conquests, having fathered four children by four different women before hitting 20. None of this put Nico off. Asked later about what attracted her to the guitarist, she said, quote, it's really very simple. He was sexy. He seduced girls. He was charming until he locked the door. And then, and that's the end of her quote in the book, goes on to say it was then that jones's sadistic tendencies came to the surface often aided by his copious drug use And this is pro poet brian gyson who was a friend of william burroughs and knew brian in Morocco. and he says brian was the kind of man who would take anything you gave him give him a handful of pills uppers downers acid whatever he just grab it and swallow it all right away and then back to the books she said the drugs he voraciously consumed caused him to have a myriad of physical problems ranging from debilitating asthma to more dire conditions demanding immediate medical attention the illicit substances also hampered his sexual performance, making him impotent and violent. Nico later spoke about various occasions when Jones, when Jones became almost frenzied in his rage. On a one occasion, hitting and punching her hard enough to leave bruises, sex acts would often include various objects, with Jones using both candles and a gun as dildos, blah, blah, blah. That he dripped hot wax onto his nipples and, and her sensitive parts. Uh, there's also tales of forced painful sodomy Um, despite all these tales of abusive behavior nico would still say years after her time with jones that quote it was fascinating and frightening but brian gave the best sex when he could he took too many drugs he was like my little brother and i had to stop him sometimes from destroying everything including himself although best sex quote was not enough for nico she often tried to strike up conversations about poetry or music with jones but found that he was quote Really too stoned to talk about anything, and often so was I. But he was gifted and could have made some original music. I kept saying that, but he called me a nag. Um, and then Zuzu, uh, they quote Zuzu saying that uh, Brian was, that it was Nico actually who had the upper hand in her relationship with Brian uh, Jones. This book says standing at barely five foot five, which I don't think is quite right. I think Brian's probably closer to five, seven or five, eight. But uh, Jones was significantly shorter than the German model. She was a six footer. Um, He was scared of her and frightened of confrontations with her. We would be at parties. And if Nico came into the room, Brian would say, oh, no, you'd better disappear for a bit. She was a big, threatening woman. I think he was probably just saying that to get rid of Zuzu when he wanted to be with Nico but (laughs) um you know let's wait
0: for our first song and tell us about The Last Mile and why you picked it
1: okay so this is Nico produced by Andrew Luke Oldham with Jimmy Page on guitar and this is a song written by Oldham and Page uh, that was the b-side of her single I'm Not Saying which was written by Gordon Lightfoot and so she was on oldham's immediate label for one single and it was commonly believed for a long time that brian had also played acoustic guitars on both sides of the single but oldham has debunked that saying the musicians union wouldn't have let him on the floor of the studio um which is confusing to me because i presume he had to be a member to record with the rolling stones but anyway if, if if oldham says he's he wasn't on the the sessions he probably wasn't but anyway this is nico doing the last mile written by andrew luke oldham and jimmy page
2: Show a little
1: laughter, show a little smile, cause we started on the last mile.
0: And that was the last mile. Let's talk about the arrest because that also played a huge role here.
1: Yeah, so there was a series of busts uh, impacting the Stones, and the first one was at Keith Richards' manor house, Redlands, which is about an hour outside London, or it was an hour at that time. I think the modern highways have made it closer uh, since then. But um, And I've told this story before in the series, but Mick and Keith uh, had a party. I believe it was the first time Mick had done Acid. Um, Marianne Faithfull was there. At one point, George Harrison and Patty Harrison Patty Boyd his his first wife were at the party and they left early in the evening and at that point the news of the world apparently called the British police or they had been waiting they, they'd already called and informed them there was going to be a drugs party at at Keith Richards house and this is all because Mick Jagger sued them for libel because they quoted Brian Jones and attributed his statements to Mick and and you know Brian was admitting to drug use and all kinds of things that Mick had never said to a reporter and would never say to a reporter. And so in a way, Brian's the start of all the trouble, because once Mick sued them for libel, then they um, started trying to get him, they set him up with the police. And so uh, Jagger and Richards are busted. It's a huge banner headlines on all the tabloids. News of the World got the exclusive, of course. And On the day the trial started, a few months later. Well, actually, after they're busted, that triggers them going to Morocco, which leads to Keith stealing Anita from Brian and and that whole disaster. And then When the trial started, literally the day, the the first day of the trial, Brian gets busted and he gets busted by this guy, Sergeant Norman Pilcher, who would later go to jail for planting evidence. And he had already arrested Donovan at that time and would later go on to arrest a myriad of rock stars, including uh, two Beatles, John Lennon and George Harrison. He might have busted Paul and Linda, Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney as well. He was kind of the Rock and Roller's Nightmare on the London Drug Squad for about seven years in the late 60s and early 70s. And he busted Brian twice. And the second time is widely believed to have been a plant because Brian was so paranoid and afraid of having drugs in his possession that he was pretty assiduous about only doing prescription drugs and alcohol <laughs> rather than oh. the illegal substances. And so and the second time they busted him, they found a, a ball of hash rolled up in a ball of wool in the bottom of a drawer in a a back room that Brian had probably never looked at because he was jumping from apartment to apartment trying to keep ahead of the London police at this time. It's also widely believed that somebody in the Stones organization set him up for the second bust, which was in May of 68. And one of the big issues with the Stones was that Mick and Keith fought their cases. They were convicted, but then the cases were thrown out after, I think, the London Times um, ran a editorial called Who who Would Break a Butterfly on a Wheel that was very sympathetic towards uh, Jagger and Richards. And that case was a huge publicity driver. I mean, The Who put out rushed release a version of Under My Thumb, backed by The Last Time, covers of two Rolling Stones songs to try to keep them in the public eye. The Beatles appeared on the Stones' We Love You single, Lennon and McCartney sang backup vocals on that. It wasn't publicly announced, but it was audible and widely known. And Brian's case got quite a bit of publicity, but he didn't get the kind of public support that Keith and Mick did. He also pled guilty. Their cases got, you know, they got convicted and they got pardoned or released. They still had the one arrest on their record. Maybe they were appealing to try to get it cleared off. Either way, they were able to go back into the States by 69 and tour. Um, But Brian with two drug busts could not tour. And since he had pled guilty the first time, Mick and Keith really turned on him for that. They thought that was complete weakness and, and playing into the hands of the authorities. And, you know, it's exactly the sort of situation that Brian Jones is going to flub um, because of his weakness and paranoia and also how easily influenced he was. And so when his lawyers told him to stop hanging out with the Stones, he stopped hanging out with the Stones, which he was already on the outs with them because of the Anita thing. But when he started actively avoiding their company, they just got completely alienated and and with oldham fleeing the country essentially to get away from the pressure and basically letting alan klein take over management of the stones oldham got in the same doghouse and alan klein was the guy who was there with mick and keith as soon as they got bailed out and was there throughout the trial and really worked his way into their confidence in this period and oldham um by his own admission basically whimped out and and bailed on the band and then they do the satanic majesty's album Apparently, deliberately sloppy and slow to cost Andrew Lou Golden money because the bill was going to his production company rather than the record label or the Stones, and also to kind of drive him away because he was not down with the kind of hippie jams that they were doing. Uh, And by all accounts, neither was Brian, that Brian wanted to stick with rock and roll. But once they did go in the hippie jam direction, he was really the only Stone with the musical chops to to do anything with that opportunity. So he played a big leading role on the Satanic Majesty's album, but it was over his creative objections.
0: I've got a few questions here. When he was bouncing around from place to place and and had recently parted with the Stones, who was financing everything? How was he earning?
1: Well, he was still being paid by the Stones. And, and all the Stones were in this position where they had signed a contract with Alan Klein, and he renegotiated their contract with British Decca and got them a huge signing bonus, a dramatic increase in royalties, and so. But then he, um, they they had a company called Nankerfelds Limited in England, and he set up a Nankerfelds Incorporated that was an American company and had all the money sent to his company, and so for the next, or two two and a half three years the Stones basically had to beg money from Alan Klein to run any of their operations. So, you know, if it's, we need, you know, limos for this tour date, or Bill wants to buy a house or Charlie wants to buy a car, they would have to beg for every outlay of money from the Klein organization. So Brian was still in the band, um, even though, and they did tour live, uh, in Europe in 67. So he's, um, presumably was getting per diem and getting paid for the gigs and recording time. So that's what was maintaining his lifestyle, which wasn't especially lavish. Um, Although he was spending money as fast as you gave it to him. He was just jumping, kind of couch surfing from flat to flat in this period. I think he was probably still paying rent on the Courtfield Road apartment where he had lived with Anita. Um, It's not until early 69 that he left the band. And at that point, they negotiated a hundred thousand pound settlement with him for the rights to the name, which is just, even for 1969, that was a ridiculously small amount of money to buy out Brian Jones. And he had a case that he owned the name, the Rolling Stones, since he had named the band and been the, the only person who signed their first management and production contract. If he had been more with it, and had legal representation he could have gotten a lot more money out of the stones and probably recurring payments rather than a one-time payment but the payment never came through he died before he got the money and his estate as far as I know never got the money and a lot of people have found that very fishy because if you dead saves Alan Klein a hundred thousand pounds which was probably about two hundred fifty thousand dollars at that time and adjusted for inflation would probably be seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars today, um, in today's money. I, I'm making that up off my head. You can Google what the price, you know, what the adjusted for inflation is between nineteen sixty nine and, and now. But it's an enormous amount of of money. You know, it, it's it's much more than hundred thousand dollars is now. But he never got that money. And some people have said that you know it was it was very advantageous for the Stones and Alan Klein not to have to pay Brian anything.
0: You mentioned We Love You, so that'll bring us to our next cue. And when we come back from that, I want to talk a little bit beyond his financial situation and get into what his estate looked like. But for now, tell us about this first selection from We Love You.
1: So this is the Rolling Stones' We Love You single from, uh, I think it came out in the summer of 1967. It wasn't a particularly big hit in England, and it flopped in the States completely. Um, And they'd had number ones with Ruby Tuesday." Uh, and their Flowers compilation album came out and was a very strong seller. And at the end of the year, Satanic Majesties was their biggest selling album up to that point. But the the We Love You track, I think, it might be the best thing that they did in the Brian Jones period. It's, it's You'll just have to hear it. It's an amazing track. It's got Lennon and McCartney on background vocals. And supposedly Lennon McCartney showed up at the studio to help out the Stones, and they were all kind of laying around, drugged up and and disorderly and not get anything done. And as soon as Lennon and McCartney walked in the studio, everybody jumped to and got cracking and got right to work. Nikki Hopkins plays a killer piano part on this uh, that was supposedly written by Keith. And Brian plays the Mellotron. And this this section is when the Mellotron comes in right after the vocals come in. So if you listen close, you can hear Lennon and McCartney on the background vocals, and you can hear Brian Jones just absolutely devastating Mellotron part. It's, it's the only time... You ever hear, you know, the Beatles use the Mellotron a lot, the Moody Blues use the Mellotron a lot, but Brian Jones's approach to the Mellotron was extremely unique and distinctive, and this is one of the most aggressive rock attacks you're ever going to hear produced by Mellotron, which was apparently incredibly hard to play. It's an analog keyboard that's rigged up to... A machine that has like eight different small tape loops literal loops of magnetic tape that are triggered by the keys so you can imagine that thing is not very responsive to the touch but somehow brian could had the touch to make it move quickly and, and in a rock context so this is the rolling stones we love you
0: All right. That was the Rolling Stones. We love you. Let's talk about what Brian was able to leave behind for, he had multiple children with several different women. Uh, so I want to know what his estate looked like. Was he able to leave anything behind? And, and, you know, you said that he didn't even get the hundred thousand
1: pounds. So. Yeah. Brian's estate. Essentially consisted of Cotchford Farms, which is this estate and farmland where A.A. Milne had lived and written Winnie the Pooh. So it's I think it was up for sale a few years ago for, you know, a few million pounds. So at the time it would have been a few hundred thousand pounds in value, but it was mortgage. So I don't know how much he had paid down on it. He only lived there for a few months at the end of his life. Um, and then there's stories about what went on at Cotchford Farms during Brian's funeral. So Brian's body is taken to Cheltenham, which is uh, on the western edge of England, right on the Welsh border, and his parents are dealing with the funeral, which was a jam-packed event. Cheltenham loved Brian Jones. They loved the Rolling Stones, but it, in Cheltenham it was very much Brian Jones's band, and thousands of people turned out for the funeral. It's a huge circus and and scene, and Brian's parents were very occupied with that. And allegedly while the funeral was going on, Tom Keelock, who was the Stones bodyguard and fix-it man, who had hired um the crew uh that was at Brian's, that was supposedly working on Brian's estate. And so uh Tom Keelock is the guy who hired Frank Thoroughgood to do work on Brian's farm. And Thorogood had been fired by Brian the day Brian died, and yet Brian let the guy stay at his house and even have dinner with him, and his girlfriend, his Swedish girlfriend Anna Wollan, and let Thoroughgood and and a nurse he was seeing stay the night in the guest house and go swimming with him and drinking with him, and Brian of course never came out of the pool alive at the end of the evening, and. Keylock in the 90s came forward and set on the ledge that Thurgood had confessed to drowning Brian Jones on his deathbed. Now, nobody trusts Keylock at all, uh, and that account has been widely disputed. I mean, it's pretty sleazy to come out after somebody dies and say, this person confessed t- to committing a murder to me on their deathbed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no way to check that. It's not fair to Frank Thurgood. He didn't – no trial was ever held. The only witnesses this hearsay uh, claim that that uh, Thorogood, I mean, that Keylock made. But the disturbing thing is that apparently Keylock and multiple people from both Thurgood's work crew and the Stones organization, which was a very seedy crew of guys, if you can imagine the kind of roadies that Keith Richards is attracting at this period of time, um they're rough they're tough they're unsavory guys and they apparently while brian jones was being buried were having a blowout party in his mansion and at the end of that party most of his musical instruments all his clothes hit all his recording tapes were taken out into the lawn and burned so somebody actively destroyed basically all of brian's Uh, assets and possessions. Because he had signed that deal with the Stones, he wasn't owed recurring royalties as far as I know. So I don't think there was any big pot of money at the end of the day. I think his parents probably inherited a lot of debt and a lot of headaches. But his parents refused to acknowledge or interact with any of the illegitimate children at any point in their lives. And his sister maintained that practice um, and presumably still does to this day. So uh, all of his sons, the two boys named Julian. Um, Wait,
0: back <laughs> only, up.
1: Back up. Yes, only Brian Jones would name two <laughs> give two kids the same name by different mothers. But he he named both of his sons, or two of his sons, the two that he was around for the birth of and had naming rights on. He named them both Julian after Julian Cannonball Adderley, the jazz saxophonist. One's they've got different middle names. One's Julian Mark, and I can't remember what the other one's name is. But Julian. One of the Julians was adopted by Donovan Leach and grew up um, as Donovan Leach's son. And his grandson, Brian's grandson, has come out publicly uh, as well. Um, There have been multiple people who've come forward and claimed to have been Brian Jones' son that were in addition to the ones that were known of before. There were the two that were put into adoption. There's Pat Andrews' child, Julian. There's Linda Lawrence's child, Julian. and. At, at least one or two others, the, the, you know, he, so he had somewhere between six and nine illegitimate children that are known of.
0: Were there any legitimate children?
1: No, Um. Okay. Jones never married and he never had any children within wedlock there. Uh, I don't know if he, he's put down as the father on the birth certificates of either of the Julians. He was involved with both of their mothers for several months after the birth of the children, although both of them were abandoned and discarded pretty brutally. Um, And, you know, there's the famous story of Linda Lawrence and her father showing up at Courtfield Road and Brian and Anita making fun of them and the baby from the balcony. As they were, you know, Brian was pretty awful. He called uh, Linda Lawrence's son, Julian Broad Beanhead, and, oh. and and liked to make fun of his prominent forehead with anybody who was around. So yeah, just just typical of the awful mess wow. <laughs> that Brian Jones made and left behind him everywhere he went.
0: So we need to take a sponsor break real quick. And when we come back, I have a bunch more questions for you. So cool. y'all stick around. We'll be right back. All right. So we were talking about Brian's parents. What was their reaction to his death? Were they shocked? Did they want the police to investigate? Was there a police investigation? Start with his parents. His parents did
1: the most public communications that they ever would do around the time of Brian's death, particularly his father. His mother was very reticent to do any interviews, as far as I know, she she I know that Stanley Booth went to their house and interviewed both of them. He, you know his his book, The True Adventures of Rolling Stones, only came out in the eighties, but he got the contract to put the book out in the late sixties, and so he interviewed them in '69, shortly after Brian's death. Um, Brian's father did some BBC interviews that you can still hear him talking about Brian, that are pretty poignant. Basically, the parents' view was that. Brian was broken by losing Anita. That after Anita left him for Keith, he was never the same and he was a shattered, you know, his father's on the record saying he went from this enthusiastic, bright-eyed young man to being basically a shattered, broken drug casualty. But the the fact that they only saw him every few months in this period of time, I think they went to Cochford Farms once the series of events that really knocked Brian out i think they were probably off by that cuz he continued to play very strongly uh throughout the satanic majesty success uh request sessions in 67 and then He's all over that record on a dozen instruments. And then he makes pretty major contributions to most of Beggar's Banquet. But then he's busted for the second time on, I think, May 21st, 1968. He had just seen Stanley Kubrick's uh, 2001, the night before. Um, And I think he'd gone to that with The Other Stones. It was the big, you know, gala, red carpet debut of the movie, if I believe I could be wrong on that. Um, And that's when... He calls the Stone's office the next morning and says, you know, it was Les Parents who was their PR guy, whose basic job at this point was to keep them out of the papers. He had worked for Frank Sinatra in the same capacity before. You know, this is a very top of the food chain British PR guy that you go to if you're Judy Garland or Frank Sinatra, and you want to be out of the papers. And the Rolling Stones had reached that level of fame where they did not want more stories about them. You know, Andrew the Goldham's role had been to stir up controversy and get them in the papers with things like, would you let your daughter marry a Rolling Stone? And, um, you know, Stones kicked out of hotel for not wearing ties or Stones kicked out of hotel for having hair too long, that kind of stuff. It got to the point where that was the last thing they needed, and they brought in Les Perrin to keep them out of the press. And so Brian calls Les Perrin and, and and tells him they're coming in through the windows. And so the police had surrounded this flat that he had crashed at. And, you know, literally there's a cop poking his hand through the mail slot in the front door. There's another cop poking his head through the the cat door and another cop coming in, multiple cops coming in through windows in the back. And all they found was this ball of wool, which with hash in it that Brian denied was his, and at the second trial he gets convicted but the judge essentially rejected the jury's findings because he he sentenced Brian to time served and and gave him a you know kind of finger waggling talk and and so that you know in Brian's fragile mental condition that prison was would be a basically a death sentence and uh you know he didn't think that the case merited that so after the second bust Brian basically never makes another, serious musical contribution to the stones apparently he started taking mandrax which was a sort of british version of the quaalude but it must have been more powerful because both brian jones and sid barrett were heavy users of it and it it you know, Quaaludes were, I think are kind of remembered. It's a drug that's no longer manufactured, but it, it was a big part of the seventies. You know, you commonly hear people using Quaaludes to kind of take the edge off their cocaine use in the disco era or something. And America had a reputation as a fairly mild sedative, something like Valium. Um, although Valium, you know, one of the most addictive drugs there is uh, very dangerous stuff, but man, Mandrake, Mandrax, sorry, was, was real poison. and, and, Jones really turned himself into a zombie there's multiple accounts like Sheila uh, Klein Oldham who was Andrew Luke Oldham's first wife she has an account of him stopping by a few weeks before his death and you know, trying to smoke a cigarette, and he can't find his mouth, so he's he's sitting there poking a cigarette in his face, <laughs> looking for his mouth. Um, just pathetic, you know, stumbling into furniture, just a complete wretched wreck of a person. but go back to his parents, okay, so they gave a few interviews um, were very sad and mournful. His dad expressed regrets about the way he was raised numerous times. He's a fairly sympathetic figure, Brian's dad. I mean, um, but they stopped speaking to the press after the early 70s, and, and so they're pretty much an enigma. And his younger sister managed to stay out of the media, as far as I know, has never spoke to the press
0: when you talked about his parents uh being especially the father being sympathetic right after the the death did they want the police uh, a full scale investigation was there an investigation what was the
1: investigation like? there was an investigation and the ruling was death by misadventure uh, the autopsy showed that he had a hor- like he had the liver of a 90 year old alcoholic basically he, he his liver was was enormously swollen and and
0: But there was never, I'm sorry, was there ever any, any notion that there might've been foul play is what I'm trying to get.
1: Yeah. I mean, originally it was, it was quickly a judge death by misadventure and, um, they eliminated, you know, they just said he drowned. Although he had an enlarged heart and an enlarged and very aged liver, he was in terrible health. Um, But it's not until, I believe, the late 90s when Thorogood comes out and or when Keylock comes out and alleges that Thorogood had confessed to drowning Brian, um, that then the Brian Jones fan club and various other people raised a ruckus. And I believe there were some attempts to investigate on the part of the police in the 90s or early 2000s. None of those investigations ever turned up anything or were particularly thorough. Um, There's a lot. A lot, a lot of rumors and um, pretty easily debunked inf- misinformation out there. Uh, uh, this guy, Tony Sanchez, wrote a book um, called, I think, Flying High with the Rolling Stones might have been the name. He was their drug dealer and and knew them relatively well in that capacity. But his memoir is wildly unreliable i mean there's some things that are definitely have the ring of truth and he did know the stones and so there's some some stories he's the only source for but everything he says has to be taken with many grains of salt and there's a whole bunch there's a whole flood of books and documentaries that wallow in various conspiracy theories that there was a massive party going on at his estate the night he died and everybody got away except you know four people talked to the police admitted to being there i don't believe that's true but there was never any thorough investigation of of his death. I believe that the reopening of the case in the 90s was closed in the 2000s. Um, There's a really bad fictional movie called Stoned about Ryan Jones came out around that period that kind of focuses on the death and goes with the theory that although they never come out and quite do it, but it does. And honestly, it's been decades since I saw the movie. So now I'm blanking on it. Uh But that it was definitely focused around his death and the and the was he or wasn't he murdered um, uh, aspect of it. But and there's a number of books like Who Killed Christopher Robin and and the whole flood of books uh, spending quite a bit of time on the conspiracy theories around his death, which just doesn't appear to be very fruitful. I do believe though that the Thoroughgood confession, there's some kind of ring of truth to that because it would be very much. I mean, who fires a contractor for being basically criminal and not doing any work or not doing quality work, and then lets them stay at their house for the rest of the evening, given Brian's pathological need to make people hate him. I mean, the only kind of friendship he could accept was unconditional love, is what Marianne Faithful said. So he, he was constantly pushing relationships, but I don't think he was testing relationships as much as he was proving To people that he was loathsome by doing loathsome things. He would manipulate people into situations that would make people hate him. Uh, Keith Richards is on the record saying that. And and that's just something that happens over and over and over again. I've told many of these stories about the way he would do that and had done that since childhood. So it's very easy to see Brian and Thorogood living out kind of a version of the story of performance, the Mick Jagger, the Donald Campbell movie starring Mick Jagger and Anita Pallenberg, where Jagger plays this reclusive rock star and a gangster on the run comes into his townhouse in London looking for a hideout and basically takes the the Brian Jones or the rock star Turner is the name of the character in the movie hostage and moving in with them. And then they kind of turn the tables on him by introducing him to Drugs and weird sexuality, or adventurous sexuality, bisexuality, orgies, various, you know, all kinds of non conventional sex and the occult, and kind of break the guy's mind. And it's easy to see where Brian, I'm sure, could have made Thurgood and his working crew really hate him by look at the pampered rock star in his swimming pool with his beautiful girlfriend, you know, and oh God, he's drunk again at 10 in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. And he's effeminate and lisping and effeminates might, might be a strong word, but I mean, he definitely was androgynous and effete. It's very easy for me to see, imagine Brian goading Thoroughgood into a rage in that swimming pool. But there's no evidence uh, other than this hearsay from Tom Keelock, who's Keelock is by all accounts the guy who burned and destroyed all of Brian's possessions. So, um, and why he would do that, it's just a it's a very weird thing. It's it's also there's the Alan Klein aspect, which Alan Klein was the guy really pulling the strings behind the Stones organization at this point. He's the guy paying Thoroughgoods' checks and everybody's checks. And so and Klein is an incredibly unsavory actor. He's most famous for Uh, breaking up the Beatles. Essentially, those three of them signed to be managed by him and Paul McCartney wouldn't and triggering the lawsuit that Paul McCartney filed against the Beatles, which McCartney says saved the Beatles' fortune. If you look at Klein's track record, he ended up with all of the rights to everything Sam Cooke ever did. And Sam Cooke died a mysterious death. The only serious investigation of Sam Cooke's death was privatized, hired by Alan Klein, who never came to any satisfying resolution and Sam Cook was killed he was shot by a woman uh, a hotel room manager but it's very fishy and a lot of people you know suspect all kinds of foul play I mean obviously there was foul play in Sam Cook's death but that the explanation was different than than the the official story of Sam Cook's death is that he was he went to a a motel with a woman he thought was a prostitute she He's taken a shower and she runs off with his wallet and his pants. He throws his suit jacket on, but is otherwise nude and goes chasing her. He thought he saw her go into the office of the motel, but she had apparently left the premises and he charges into the office of the hotel and the over 200 pound landlady um, killed him. So, but the, the point of all that was that Alan Klein had profited, from the death of Sam Cooke, because when Sam Cooke died, he owned his own publishing company, his own record label. Um, He owned all his master tracks. He, he was really set up in a very unique way for a performer of his time is kind of like he was heading in the direction that, that P Diddy and Jay-Z ultimately went in, you know, 30 years later for a black performer, but Klein profited from the situation, controlled the situation and prevented by by doing his own investigation, you know, he, he blocked off other investigations. So you have to wonder who ordered Tom Keelock to burn all of Brian's stuff. Why did they do that? I mean, we're talking about rare musical instruments, stage costumes, um, his clothes collection, which was, you know, world famous jewelry and tapes, tapes and tapes and tapes of his songwriting efforts. And so, There's no end of speculation as to why that stuff was destroyed. Um, But basically by the time the parents got to Cotchford Farms, uh, there was very little left uh, for them to claim possession of. Let's
0: go ahead and take another break here for a song and tell us about this part of We Love You.
1: Okay, so yeah, so this is another snippet of We Love You. This is the end of the track where Brian cuts loose on Mellotron. And this is probably the most extended improvisation he did on any Stones record.
0: Love you by the Rolling Stones. Just got a few more questions here to uh, put this one to bed. There were lots of children. Did they grow up to become musicians themselves? What happened to uh, Brian Jones's kids?
1: Um, you can Google it. I'm not especially interested in it, but I I know that Julian Mark, who I believe was Linda Lawrence's son, Julian Leach, uh That's Donovan's last name, Donovan Leach. Um, That's L-E-I-T-C-H. He was involved in speaking to the Brian Jones fan club. Pat Andrews was very active speaking to the Brian Jones fan club, but I don't know that her son, Julian, I I mean, she would give updates on him, but I don't know that he ever interacted with him. And Brian's grandson by Julian Mark is a musician, but I don't know really much more about him than that. Um, Yeah, I mean – and then there's another son uh, by Don Malloy. I forgot about her when I was counting up earlier, and she's a woman who wrote an autobiography about her time with Brian. And uh, she she has a quote. I've seen in a number of videos from that book. I've read the book, but uh, that she 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 ultimately judged that Brian was a lost person, and that's why she identified him with him so much. Um, but her child, she reconnected with her son who was adopted out against her will and her account of her relationship was with, with her son is pretty interesting when they finally do connect as an adult and she discovers to her horror that he had inherited a number of Brian's traits including possibly this weird epileptic syndrome Bill Wyman is a big believer that Brian Jones had some form of epilepsy that caused him to have seizures that would trigger personality changes um, which I don't entirely buy. I mean, I do believe that he had seizures. and He might have had some form of epilepsy. But I don't think that was – that that's the universal explanation for his character behavior. But, but Wyman seems to be willing to ascribe most of Brian's worst behavior to that. And, he, and Wyman claims that some of the children have that syndrome. And Don Malloy, her account of her interactions with her biological son with Brian – kind of go along with that and that the, the the guy was very erratic and and turned on people turned on a dime you know would be friendly and then and then hostile uh in an instant switch back and forth so um you know there's not much now and i mean brian jones it's one of these things where if you look at post-mortem celebrity like you know recent a few years ago there was a documentary about nat king cole that came out well if you look into it it was produced by his first wife and and some of their children who had inherited a pretty substantial estate. I mean, you know, and and Natalie Cole became a big superstar. So they had connections in 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 the movie business and the music business and could get something like that, that done. And even for people certainly like little Willie John, who, you know, squandered his, what money he made as a, as a star on the R and B circuit in the mid fifties, you know, dies in prison in the, in the late sixties. His family had the wherewithal to hire Susan Whithall to write a biography of him. Brian had nothing like that. His parents didn't have any interest in his career as a rock star or, you know, celebrating his legacy as a musician. His sister has shown no willingness to to be publicly involved with with Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones in any way, shape, or form. So there's been nobody managing his estate. Like there's no. The, the the soundtrack he did for the um, Anita Pallenberg movie, Mort von Tischlog I think is what it's called. I can't remember what that translates, what it was released as in English. But there's ne- never been a release of the soundtrack album as such. And it's believed that the master tapes of that soundtrack were burned up in the fire at his estate. Although there have been weird instances of knickknacks and stage costumes and even a demo recording there's a recording of brian jones demoing a song called sure i do on the wall at the um rock and roll cafe it was the hard rock cafe at the hard rock cafe in london and the guy who owns it has also popped up with a number of stage costumes and maybe even an instrument or two so somebody might have grabbed some of that stuff and sold it on the black market. It's, it's unknown. But um, anyway, there's still kind of hope that that the master tapes for that soundtrack are out there. You can get a DVD, a bootleg DVD of the movie, and you can hear the soundtrack in the context, context of the film, but you can't hear it as a solo album. The one thing the Stones did do, though, was that they oversaw the release of the posthumous release of Brian Jones presents the pipes of pan at Jujuka, which are the recordings he made with the master musicians of Jujuka, um, which is this, uh, Moroccan Bedouin tribe that we talked about last time where he, he, he ventured out into the Moroccan countryside and was the only person to get to record these guys at the time and is still kind of a legend in Morocco and in this, uh, community, um, the the jujuka community and so that was the one kind of classy thing is that the stones uh saw that project through and it got released it's quite interesting it's quite a good album it's um and we'll hear a little bit of it later brian uh, did some studio effects on it in in the studio and and did kind of make a produced album out of it but it's essentially a live track of these incredible, um, ethnic musicians, uh, you know, it's an anthropological, uh, masterpiece. Although, you know, the fact that Brian manipulated it in the studio makes it not really good anthropology, but, uh, it's, it's a very interesting album. And if you're a Brian Jones fan or a Led Zeppelin fan, Jimmy Page was really heavily influenced by Brian and, and worked on the soundtrack to the movie, uh, to the Anita Pallenberg movie that Brian Jones had made. And when you hear tracks like cashmere, By Led Zeppelin, um, you're hearing what Jimmy Page gleaned from Moroccan music that he was introduced to by Brian Jones. So I kind of view Jimmy Page as kind of carrying on the legacy of Brian in that way. Although the Stones eventually in 1989, I think they did a track on steel wheels and recorded with the master musicians of Jujuka in kind of a tribute to Brian, but at least an acknowledgement of Brian's interest in that music. And he had come back from Morocco dead set on featuring a lot of that Moroccan sound on beggar's banquet, but Mick and Keith had decided to go to do more of a back to the basics, rock and roll blues album. And so there wasn't really any space for him to do any of the things he had in mind, um, with the Moroccan musicians. So if you want to hear what it might've sounded like for a rocker to incorporate Moroccan stuff, I think Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti album is a great place to start.
0: Just have two, Questions left to wrap up the Brian Jones saga. Would you say that because I I get the impression that there wasn't much of a police investigation uh, to speak of. Would you say that they might have been more inclined to devote more time if he hadn't been such a public piece of shit? Because I, I, I feel like maybe that might be the case.
1: Of course. Yeah, I think the police were happy to see him go and um devoted very little time or attention to it i mean i think everybody was just like oh he's he's finally dead you know um although he was the first rock star of his era to die he's kind of the charter member of the 27 club um he, you know he dies way before jimmy hendrix he dies a full year or two years before jim morrison he dies before janice joplin um and obviously way before kurt cobain and amy Winehouse and all that so yeah, I mean, if if he had not been so publicly notorious, and all of the Stone's notoriety kind of landed on his shoulders, in a sense, um, you know, as far as the police were concerned, a Stone's a stone, and, and they'd all be better off dead. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm sure if he had been a respectable member of the House of Lords, there would have been a much more thorough investigation. Although, if there was somebody else in the House of Lords who was... Um, swiping his inheritance and legacy maybe that would have been brushed under (laughs) under the rug as well but there were a lot of people you know the stones had no interest in in flipping over rocks about brian's death i mean keith's keith's view of it is that and and he expressed he's he has actually expressed some Serious, profound regret that he wasn't there to protect Brian. Um, at the end, he, you know, who's just like there was nobody there to take care of him, and he couldn't take care of himself, and and nobody there that cared about him enough to keep him out of the bottom of the pool, you know. And Mick's take on it is that it's just people trying to make money off the stones, so they've they've never looked into it. Although Ian McLaughlin, the keyboard player for the Faces, uh, lived in Austin for several years before his death, and. I heard secondhand a story that he told people about being at a big rock star gala in the early 70s when he was in the faces with Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood and that Mick and Keith were standing by the punch bowl, which had kind of one sad little piece of fruit floating in it and sinking to the bottom and that they were over there elbowing each other in the stomach and laughing. Hey, it's Brian. Um, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. that's, that's the kind of cold comfort you get from the stones. Um,
0: so my last question, and this, this will put a pin in it because I, I've been thinking for, for the past three episodes that we've been doing this, I've been trying to find a modern day comparison for Brian Jones. And I just can't, the closest I can come is like Johnny Rotten or Sid Vicious, but, I mean, Sid Vicious would obviously be the closest one since he actually died. But is there someone at all that, that is a comparison for Brian Jones that you could Well, of? I mean,
1: in a way, every rock star who's come to a bad end, Brian Jones was kind of the first modern rock star, at least in England. And there have been so many who deliberately followed his path, like Skip Spence of Moby Grape saw him at monterey and you know there's a quote from the olden book um from al cooper who played keyboards on bob dylan's um like a rolling stone and he said um i've i flew from lax to monterey on my first learjet sitting next to the only one of the Stones to attend Monterey, Brian Jones, who appeared to be convening on Jupiter, <laughs> and so Brian had been given a STP that weekend, which is an incredibly powerful hallucinogen that lasts for like 36 hours. Pete Townsend was dosed with it on his way home, and um, you know, spent this nightmarish flight. Vomiting and crying and was high for 36 hours. Brian appeared to be unfazed and functional after having been dosed, and supposedly he took multiple doses of the stuff. And (laughs) you know, it wasn't it wasn't much different probably than his regular state at that time. Anyway, someone
0: that actually like turned everyone against them the way I've
1: never heard of anybody with that particular pathology except for him. I'd love to know of somebody else, and I'm the only one who's i think barry miles who's a biographer of frank zapper and paul mccartney and um has talked about brian jones having that need to alienate people but um i think that's where i got it but no i've never heard of anybody with that particular thing like i just reread michael Lazared's biography of nirvana um with a heavy focus on kurt cobain and there's a lot of things about cobain that are similar to brian jones i mean they were both blonde Cobain had a death wish people multiple people talk about meeting Cobain and going this is not a guy He's not going to be with us for very long This is you know one of those people that's just not going to live for forever Which is something a lot of people said about Brian Jones, but but they loved Kurt Kurt everyone loved him. I mean that's the thing Kurt was the leader and songwriter of the band so Cobain was actually creatively um, Realized fulfilled Brian Jones is the only person I can think of who starts a band as an arranger and leader and has the band turn into a modern rock group that's led by the singer-songwriters. And so he, there's not really anybody analogous to him. He's kind of a jazz figure who helped create modern rock and roll or modern rock music. Without knowing what he was doing, you know, he, he didn't know where things were going to go. And so he's looking at, at patterns in the past. So there's really nobody like him. I mean, I think anybody with his talent who's in a band today would fight their corner and get songwriting credits. You know, if, if, if you wrote the main riff of a song, you would demand songwriting credit and that would be granted, you know, or you'd quit the band. I mean, um, so there's nobody with his particular set. He's a very unique character. I, I just don't know of anybody... That's that's a complete match for him. You know, there's really no other story like it that I've run across of this, the triumvirate, the unstable triumvirate at the heart of the stones, the Jagger Richards Jones relationship. There's really nothing else like it that I'm aware of. Uh, It's it's a pretty unique story. And that's part of why it's fascinated me for so long. I mean, there was always something off with the stones and no sooner does Brian die than Keith Richards becomes the new Brian as a semi functioning junkie. And so the Stones, even though they made multiple masterpieces and toured successfully many times, they were never really at full strength uh, throughout the whole Mick Taylor era because Keith was semi functioning, just like that they had rarely been at full strength in the Brian Jones era because of Brian's personal failings. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. it but... <laughs> absolutely
0: does. And it's a perfect end to the story. There is no one else like him. So we have one last song. You mentioned it earlier, The Pipes of Pan. This will take us out. So, Nate, take us away.
1: So this is Brian Jones presents The Pipes of Pan at Shizuka. i just giving you the first 30 seconds. You have to hear the album in its entirety to, or at least half of the album you know one side of the old vinyl lp at a time to really comprehend this thing i think it pairs very well with um miles davis bitches brew and and uh uh jack johnson and things like that like i'll frequently listen to this in a set when i'm listening to fusion era miles davis so this is brian jones presents the pipes of pan and jazuka And that was the first 30 seconds of Brian Jones presents the pipes of pan at Zizuka. And I guess I'll end this with what he asked his parents, you know, don't judge me too harshly. Uh, that that was his, his plea. And I think we've been plenty harsh on him, uh, but I think he earned it. Um, but I also think that he deserves credit for starting the stones for inventing the stones master, you know, picking the members, arranging the music. It's not just that he added these exotic touches on top, these sitars and mellotrons and flutes. It's that he constructed the chassis of that band. He said, "I want this guitarist, I want that drummer, I want this bass player. I want everybody to play together in this way. I want the two guitars to weave together and and you know interact very tightly to make two guitars sound like an orchestra." He invented the Rolling Stones and he lived their story in all you know all the demonic imagery they played with. Brian Jones went out and did. Mick Jagger is a classic observer chronicler, and Brian Jones was what he chronicled. I mean, (laughs) you know, Brian Jones not only inspired Mick Jagger's persona, this combination of Keith Richards and Brian Jones that he perfected by the late 60s, he taught the band to play and told them what to play and told them how to play it. And, you know, the Rolling Stones have had more impact on popular music than any act this side of the Beatles, uh, in the last 50 years. So thanks, Brian. And, uh, I hope you rest easy. I certainly wouldn't want to encounter you in the afterlife.
0: <laughs> Follow the letter roll podcast on Twitter at Let it roll cast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate will return with another Let It Roll nightmare from the vaults. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.